Talking Trek to you, where an expert and a noob boldly go through Star Trek episode by episode. My name is JG McQuarrie, and I'm here with my co-host, Kev Closer. Say hi, Kev. Hi. How are you doing this week, Kev? Well, my mining colony is under attack by some silicon-based creature, but don't worry. I'm going to kill it very soon, and it's going to be very easy and not a moral dilemma at all. Excellent. Well, that's good to know, and hopefully you won't have to smear it in any garlic sauce either in order to make it go down slightly easier. <laughs> Um, not that I'm suggesting anything in this episode looks like a pizza. Um, anyway, yes, this week we'll be covering Devil in the Dark. And of course, we're not doing it alone. So say hello, Tony. Hello, Tony. Oh, sorry, I took you literally. Uh, yes, hello. How are you? <laughs> I'm very well, thank you. How are you doing? Doing all right. End of the semester, uh, editing a new podcast episode, which you were on, in fact. So that will be releasing next week, quite soon. Excellent. Exciting stuff. Now, as we always do at the top of the show, we uh, like to turn to our guests and ask them what their history with Star Trek uh, is in general. So, yeah, what's your history with Star Trek? How did you come to the show? Well, when I was young, much younger, when I was a kid, we actually had James Blish's book of novelizations of the uh, first set of episodes. In our house, for some reason, I have no idea why we had such random books at our house. So I actually came to Star Trek by reading it first and then saw the repeats on television because it had gone into syndication here in the States in the mid 70s. And so I've been a fan for of Star Trek for longer than I've been a fan of Doctor Who, which is disturbing on so many levels. But yeah, that's how I came to it. I guess we, sh we should note, and in case there's any listeners confused by your comment, why you brought up Doctor Who. You host the Target Doctor Who Book Club, is that the name? Oh yes, that's it, the Doctor Who Target Book Club podcast, yes. It's a bit okay. of a mouthful, and it has caused such luminaries as Paul McGann to stutter over his words when he was introducing it. So yeah, oh. that's the name of the podcast. I somehow did not know you were able to talk to Paul McGann. That is incredible. <laughs> Feel well, the jealousy. Briefly. <laughs> we, uh, we actually got several people to record bumpers for us. So every once in a while, wow. you'll hear Paul McGann introduce our podcast. You'll hear Sylvester McCoy uh, uh, introduce it. You'll hear John Leeson. There are several people. I'd still love to get Tom Baker before he dies, but I have a feeling mm -hmm. that's not going to happen. Well, on our Doctor Who past, we had a sustained conversation with Rob Shearman, so there you go. Oh, nice. I love Rob. <laughs> Rob's wonderful. Yeah. So have you managed to um, carry on with your love of Star Trek? Has it gone on to the, the like um, later 20th and 21st century series? It surprisingly has. Uh, and I say surprising <laughs> because I had high hopes for Discovery and uh, Star Trek Discovery, and those hopes were dashed by the first season. But by the second, they started to pick up, and yeah, it's been okay. Whereas some of the newer series, I love Star Trek Picard. I love Lower Decks. I actually adore Strange New Worlds. It probably is the best successor to the original series that I can think of. Uh, Prodigy, I'll even watch, though that one's a little harder to stomach because it's the Sarah Jane Adventures version of Star Trek. Mm -hmm. 
so yeah kid series uh, not so much but yeah i actually do like all of the newer permutations about the only things i don't like are the same things that everybody doesn't like which are star trek 5 and um certain parts of voyager and the first season of enterprise so much the same as everybody else Fair enough. Oh, can I can I also just say uh, James Blish very much the Terence Dix of the Star Trek world. Oh, God, is he ever! I adore James Blish. I I just want to throw in the quick jab. I'm surprised you put the actually modifier in front of Strange New Worlds instead of Picard. <laughs> you do know what the consensus is. <laughs> well, true. I think it's because I've seen Picard more recently, hmm. and we're not getting season two of Strange New Worlds until next month. But I am very much looking forward to that. Oh yes, uh, it's it's the one new Trek show we will pause, put this podcast on pause and talk about for the new seasons because there's just so much to talk about with Strange New Worlds and, like I said, has that link to TOS that is so fascinating. I do want to say I have a funny story about a link between Star Trek and Doctor Who. Um, I don't know if you remember those uh, Davros figures that Dapol used to put out in the eighties. You could mm-hmm. pull back and go forward like the Daleks can. A friend of mine altered one of those and made a uh, pull and go Christopher Pike. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's, an, that's an excellent idea. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. Well, before we disappear down this rabbit hole any further, I think we should probably get to our uh, plot summary. So, um, Kev, over to you. All right. On Devil in the Dark, the Enterprise arrives at a mining colony where they are tasked with uh, defeating an alien creature. Uh, who has been killing miners and has recently stolen the nu- colony's nuclear reactor. Uh, Kirk and Spock, after a lot of mutual concern for each other, wind up stumbling across the creature. Uh, it's a silicon-based life form that is really just making tunnels to protect the thousands of exits laid to, in a sort of cicada-like fashion, monitor the next generation of its species, called the Horta. Uh Thanks to some mind-melding, translating, and communication opening, uh, Kirk and Spock are able to negotiate between the creature and the miners and peacefully resolve and let them work in harmony from the future, for the future. Fantastic. Thank you very much. Well, I mean, Devil in the Dark probably is an episode which, you know, is one of those that doesn't really need an introduction. But now we've had one. Excellent. Um, And we can find out whether it really deserves its reputation. So, um, Tony, how did you find this one? Well... I, I think I uh, said before we started recording that it had been years since I had rewatched this, but it's always been one of my favorite episodes. And it definitely stands out even from the redone ones that they put out that you, you because you can't find the original versions anymore with the original special effects. But it stands out even now because it. It just works on so many levels in ways that some of the first season Star Trek episodes don't always do. I think, uh, Kev, you mentioned uh, Balance of Terror being one of the, you know, standouts of the season. And I think this, if it's not the standout, it's a close second. Yeah, I I think close second's where I'm landing on, too, just looking at um, the little spreadsheet I'm maintaining of our little out of 10 scores of what we've covered so far and yeah i mean balance of terror is still my favorite but this is this is such a monumental episode i truly loved it um around the beginning i i tweeted out while watching this uh oh sometimes it looks like star trek episodes are sometimes it's the gripping moral dilemma ones and sometimes it's there's a monster in the cave one 
like five minutes in, not knowing how it was a turnout, and I was very delighted. This is both. It really does um, <laughs> kind of encompass both halves, like cerebral and the action. And yeah, I mean, obviously, I, I, we it's tricky in this podcast to talk about like, oh, it's such a basic sci-fi story, and but in the '60s there was still so much being like things weren't the basic stories yet. So it's interesting to come from that modern perspective of like, oh, of course, it's a creature that people are misunderstanding and that just needs empathy. It's a very familiar story in 2023, and it still works, I think, is sort of the miracle here. It's just so well written. The characters are so strong, and it just manages to keep that sort of core to it so clean and effective that, yeah, it's, it's just a wonderful piece of writing. I mean, I know I'm often the voice of dissent when it comes to um, like classic episodes or the ones that everyone loves. Um, oh, no, I'm not, not you. I'm not in this case. <laughs> yeah, I know it's hard <laughs> to believe, uh, but not in this case. Um, I also love Devil in the Dark. I think it's a, an absolutely fantastic episode that is is one of those few which actually, yeah, really does manage to live up to its own reputation and then some. It's just got an amazing confidence about the way that it's written. It's very secure in what it's doing, um, and it's happy to play with the characters that we know and love. It's not afraid to make, uh, you know, Kirk have flaws. It's not afraid to put um, Spock in difficult situations. It's not even afraid to make McCoy unsympathetic at times, uh, and it just gets on with the business of doing that. A lot of the monster in the cave stuff is sort of, if you were feeling ungenerous, you could describe it as kind of slightly hokey kind of B-movie stuff, which, you know, there's like an aspect of that to it. Um, but everything is so well sort of put together here that it, it manages to overcome any kind of cliche or any kind of, you know, slight B-moviness to it. Um, and it's just such a resounding success for the series. I also find it interesting that I just realized it may be the only episode of the series that has no female characters in the plot. Well, unless you count the the Horda herself. Yes, I I have a fun little memory alpha cited uh, story about that. Uh, really? Yeah, this was um, this is mentioned on Memory Alpha in like a letter Gene Roddenberry is writing to Gene Kuhn. Um, apparently, like to sum it up. This is an episode with no female actor speaking parts. And he was sort of recriminating both of them, basically, in the letter. Like, ah, we created this world where, like, female people, women, are granted, that's the new word for them, are granted equal <laughs> status and responsibility with men, and yet we keep forgetting to put them in our episodes. There should have been female minors. There should have been female people on the away team. And we just are living in the 1960s and can't remember that. So... <laughs> Yeah, it, it definitely, it's something that comes up in this podcast all the time is sort of this uh, cultural stress between wanting to create this vision of the future, but not really having the mental capacity almost to sort of see beyond the culture of the 1960s and the gender politics of the time and like just the way these men creating and by and large men creating and producing this show have been uh, socialized and all. So yeah, it's... It is unfortunate. This is apparently the only episode with no female uh, speaking parts, at least. There's not going to be any more. Uh, and like I said, the Horda is a female character, at least. But yeah, there's not... It is just such a weird oversight that even the people behind the show are pointing out to themselves. Yeah, and the interesting thing is they probably could have included women on the security detail, except mm -hmm. for a 60s audience, that would not have been believable. 
Whereas right. by the time they get to the animated series in 1973, um, I did a video on that particular series last year. Uh, there is an episode where the men are all under the siren call or whatever, and the women have to run the ship, including putting Uhura in charge of the ship. And they have several women in security in that particular episode, but not this time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we've, we've noted, I think particularly when we were talking about... Um... Uh, what was a test of Armageddon, which unexpectedly just had like a Japanese American woman who was cast as one of the landing party. Um, but I believe like she was a she's a historian or a geologist or something like that. You know, like like one of the how can I put this politely? One of the less threatening to nineteen sixties audiences kind of crew members. <laughs> um, but but also we noted in passing that you know that was still great because there was no need for that character to be either woman or to be. Um, Japanese American, and yet she was, and that's great. That's represent- representation done well. So when you come to an episode like this, it does kind of stick out that that absence is there. Um, there's a couple of other very slight logistical short flaws, particularly the tendency to send people into tunnels by themselves. Um, <laughs> it's almost, it's almost as if they knew they were in an episode and wanted to up the dramatic tension so that two people couldn't defend them. Um, uh, you know, there's little bits and pieces like that. But I, again, like for all that there are little bits and pieces in this episode that have flaws, so much of it just works it, it's it's incredibly easy to kind of get past that um and just you know take the episode for what what it is which is just a terrific kind of slice of drama well i think of it more as a positive in this case if only because it keeps us on track with the plot because if there had been a female character they would have felt the need to have kirk flirt with her and that would have eaten up screen time and here it's all devoted to the plot, which is just lovely. Yeah, I, I guess it's just sort of the point of view of that if you can't change the time period, <laughs> uh, <laughs> I just think I gotta take it was what it is. Um, but yes, it is such like a well-honed script and just, just so much that works about it. Um, I, it's just almost hard to think about where to start. Uh, let's, well, let's start with how the episode came about, which is another sort of uh, this was something that was both tweeted at me by uh, previous guest Carl Garcia, uh, and then also I found it on Wikipedia as well, where the Horta was played by a stuntman called uh, Janos Proaska. Hopefully I pronounced that right. P-R-O-H-A-S-K. H-A-S. Yeah, anyways. Okay. Um, he also designed the costume, and basically, uh, I don't know who he pitched it to, but he designed this costume, showed off some producer, um, hey, look, I can run around this costume and be a convincing pizza alien. <laughs> and they wrote the episode around that. And he was allowed to, of course, play it as well and get the costume credit and everything, uh, which is, I just think, wonderful. It's, and I do think it obviously looks, you can tell it's a stuntman under like, a colorful blanket. Like, it's, it, you can't get around that. <laughs> but it still works because the actors treat it with such conviction it's, I mean, this is gets to like a big issue I have with a lot of modern stuff where it's like studios really need to pump millions of dollars into the most convincing CGI and we'll let like projects like die on the vine or cut down scripts just because, well, we can't make it look convincing enough. But you can go back and watch this episode and yeah, I, 
I don't believe that's a real alien. I believe it's someone under a blanket, but it's still the, the, what I'm watching it for the meat of the episode, the story, the characters, everything still works. I can use my imagination and figure it out. And yeah, this is just such a good example of how, even when you're running up against like just technological limitations of how something works, you can still like get a good creative, um, fulfillment out of it yeah and and being a doctor who fan i'm more than used to really bad costumes Mm -hmm. and having to suspend disbelief and it's not a horrible costume in any way it but you're right there's there's no getting past the point that that is a person under what you call a colorful blanket and you're absolutely right and yet it works because of everybody taking it dead seriously Shatner looking like he's absolutely about to wet himself when mm-hmm. he's confronted with it, and it, it's perfect. Well, yeah, I, the, in 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 simpler terms, they commit, and that's it. That's you need that conviction, and it, it's greatly helped by the extended scene of um, Spock mind melding with it as well. Because, however, um, slightly ridiculous the costume might look, like it firstly helps that uh, Janos Posaka actually gives a good performance, like the way he scuttles mm-hmm. or whatever, or, or, or shuffles back and forth, particularly when like Kirk's pointing the phaser without firing it, and then it kind of recoils a bit, and then he pulls it down and it kind of shuffles forward, and all that kind of stuff, like that's, I mean, it sounds simple, but that's, that must be a very hard thing to do under, you know, uh, a deep-fried stuffed crust. Um, it's not, <laughs> it's, it's yeah. not easy, and and it, and because because the actions like feel kind of convincing, it's much easier to buy into it being like this alien creature rather than just somebody under a blanket. And it's also just refreshing to have an alien creature which isn't a woman in 1960s pop art dress or, you know, with, with you know, the standard classic Star Trek thing of, you know, bumps in the forehead. It's it's a genuinely unusual piece of creature design at this point in the series. And that also really helps to kind of sell it. It is unconventional. It's unusual. So it's easier to kind of buy into the reality of it. It's a performance that feels very... Um... I might be quoting a word here. I don't know. Hensonian, like Jim Henson-esque, like (laughs) uh, what those people who he worked with uh, could do with like the Muppets and creatures like that, where it's like, we're not acting in a traditional way, but we are manipulating these like felt things to create this sort of emotional uh, reaction. It's, it, it requires such a different brain for his acting and puppeteering. And it that's sort of what I was connecting with. It's like, yeah, he's really embodying this creature by doing things that are like, not things a human could do, but how do you convey this is hurt by like scrunching up? How do you convey this is excited by like doing a sort of wavy motion? It's, it's really genius stuff in a way, especially because there wasn't a really active Jim Henson at this time. I think he was around, but certainly not, to the degree he would be soon with like Sesame Street and the Muppet Show. So yeah, I, it just feels like the dawn of that sort of uh, kind of performance. And to go back to something that JG said, you're absolutely right. This, this is, if I'm remembering correctly, this is the first time we've gotten a seriously, genuinely alien alien in the movie and the uh, series, isn't it? We haven't had one that was non-humanoid before this. And for that matter, in the original series, there aren't that many aliens that aren't humanoid. So this is one of the few times that they attempt it. And it 
actually does work. Yeah, there'll be one or two times where we get like clouds of nebulous gas, and I suppose we technically had the salt vampire, which is humanoid, but it's it's oh, yeah. it's it's still portrayed as being sort of properly kind of alien in its uh, sort of physiognomy. But yeah, it, it's very unusual for the original show to go to this kind of well. So when you see it doing it and doing it so successfully, you know that kind of becomes a shame. Maybe maybe if they did do it more often, maybe it would diminish the impact of something like this. But I mean, regardless, it's still, I mean, it's still such a, such a triumph of the show. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I really want to see hopefully more abstract performances like this. Um, it's just really incredible. I, I've also been recently rewatched the first one. I'm now watching for the first time, the original series of Planet of the Apes, which is also just very similarly like obviously humanoid creatures, but working with 1960s special effects and makeup. And it's, again, these actors, the actors who are good at playing apes are the ones who think of ways humans wouldn't do things, like scrunching their nose and using the big old nose on their face in a way that a human would be less visible or by like embodying the more ape-like behaviors. And so I don't know, it's just so fascinating to me that this is this is the first time you could do that. Like, special effects makeup like this i mean obviously tv and has been around for about a decade at this point and movies a few decades but i'm struggling to think of prominent examples except for maybe like godzilla where actors were getting into these like elaborate costumes and doing non-human kind of actions to convey emotion and reason it also helps uh, that um because the creature is convincing or convincing enough at any rate it, it, it helps to sell the reaction of the uh, people who live in this colony. You know, they have, they, it's, it's, it's one thing to be told, oh, we're, we're afraid of this monster that's lurking in the darkness. But it's another when you actually see the monster and it actually has enough behind it that you think, yeah, it's not difficult to understand why they would be, why they would be scared of this. And Again, like if you're not feeling generous, you can. It's easy to mock the costumes looking a bit like a pizza, but some design had thought has gone into it. You know the the kind of almost sort of uh, lines of kind of lava or whatever that run across it, and and you know we get that cold open where the world's most Brooklyn miner, is, <laughs> <laughs> space Brooklyn is alive and well in the 23rd century. <laughs> I, I'm not going to do the accent. I can barely do a Scottish accent, so I'm not going to try and do a Brooklyn accent. But good grief, there's only one borough he comes from and we know where it is um uh, but it's a lovely performance and like he gets he's got like he's kind of a sympathetic figure he's trying to do the right thing he's killed off by this creature and you know at that point we're simply told that he's burned to a crisp we don't even get like the like the smoke rising from the ground or whatever we just get like the head the head colonist's uh, reaction to it they do that gradually throughout the episode. Just every time we see somebody that's been killed by the Horta, we just get a little bit more detail and a little bit more detail. And that's a really nice way of helping to kind of like develop the threat. First, we're just told about it. Then we see a little bit more. Then we see a bit more. We get um, McCoy's very gruesome description of just like there being some bones and teeth left at some point as well. So, you know, that helps to develop the credibility of the creature long before we even get to see the costume it's a really really effective way of kind of like building that tension and building that fear throughout kind of like the first half of the episode oh yeah i i'm surprised you don't see the creature for so late but then once you do it's it's just i was expecting something humanoid and it's just so impressive that they managed to create this entirely new thing instead i think it definitely earns sort of the hype 
And it also, it's what makes, that's when the big linchpin turning point of this episode is. Um, I think, feel like if you could ding that first half for being a little like rote and like slow, um, it's once the creature shows up that things really pick up. And like you get, it's more than just a monster in a cave. It's also this fascinating sort. Cause like just the way um, the actor acts as the Horta, uh, he he is like so expressive, like we've been talking about, and so your your sympathy, even for such an unusual looking thing, I feel like it gets your sympathy so quickly, and it really changes everything just from the moment you start seeing it. And and what an entrance, huh? Mm-hmm. <laughs> that first moment where you see it burning through the cave wall, and this is one of the sequences I actually went and I tracked down the effects comparison. Mm-hmm. Because on YouTube, you can find the original effects right next to the special edition effects you can get on Netflix these days. Uh, sorry, Amazon over here. And they really don't do that much of a change because the original effect is pretty impressive for the time. And it is terrifying to see something burning through a wall and coming at you. Yeah, it's, I mean, yeah, it is a really cool effect. And then, and then, like I said, you have the contrast of it burns through a wall, and then it's kind of cute in its way. It's just such a <laughs> great little reversal. Um, and then I think Shatner plays it so well. It's it's time for the Shatner corner, I guess. Yes. I I think his first scene with that creature is so well done, where he's like testing it out. He like it's a very dialogue light uh, scene as well, where he is just sort of like testing it pulling out the gun, putting it away, getting closer, backing up. He's just so, you just so totally get the sense this is the scientist part of him being activated, that he wants to understand this creature more than he just wants to like stomp all over it. And that's reflected in the dialogue that he has with Spock, because mm-hmm. Spock says that it's going to be a crime against science to kill it. Mm-hmm. And Kirk says, I'm, I'm sorry, but we have a duty to protect these miners. We have to destroy it. And he's actually regretful over that yeah. in a way that we don't often see Kirk being regretful about killing a monster. I'm, I'm going to do something which you probably weren't expecting now, which is I'm going to draw a favorable, favorable comparison with Star Trek Into Darkness. Hmm. Right. So here we go. <laughs> so one of the things I like about Star Trek into darkness is the way that it characterizes kirk the way specifically it relates to this episode in in, um uh, into darkness kirk is sent by admiral marcus on this assassination mission to kill the character uh known as john harrison who we all know is calm but fine let's just go with conceit for the time being um and kirk is infuriated you know his his um his mentor has just been killed by this guy. He's kind of in a blind rage. And Spock sort of reaches out to him and says, you know, you can't, you can't just go on a murder mission. And Kirk kind of dismisses him and throws, it, throws Spock's uh, complaints to one side. And, you know, and, we're, and the whole point is that you're meant to be swept up with it. And then you get the crash reveal, which is actually Spock got through to Kirk. And so when Kirk goes on the assassination mission, Actually, he realizes he can't just kill somebody in cold blood. He's not just a hired assassin or a murderer. And so he ends up, uh, through various contrivances, taking John Harrison prisoner. Then we get the reveal about um, Khan and all that nonsense. And um, yeah, that's a whole uh, separate thing. Um, But I think that 
is really good characterization of Kirk in Into Darkness because it's the same characterization we have in this episode. Kirk wants this creature killed. In fact, when Spock specifically suggests to the security team that maybe they could capture it, like he really, you know, like upbraids Spock and says, well, I don't, I never gave you that order. What the hell are you talking about? Um, you know, like he's very clear. And yet he can't commit to being that guy. He's not ultimately the bad guy. He, you know, Spock's arguments, Spock's rationale eventually get through to it. So actually their situations end up being reversed. It's it's uh it's Spock who's saying, you know, kill it, Jim, kill it, your life's in danger. And it's it's Kirk that holds back and is actually able to finally kind of broker the peace between the Horta and and the miners by by coming to understand it. As, uh, in this episode, that's a really brilliant piece of characterization for Kirk. I really, really love that. But it's 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 an, a not often remarked upon piece of characterization for Kirk in Into Darkness. So I just wanted to draw that parallel there. Okay, I'm done now. No problem. But yeah, <laughs> I, that was just the moment I was chomping at the bit to cite as well. It's so good how their added drawers of creatures flip uh I, I don't know if now is the time to launch into all the kirk spock dynamic in this episode oh, which I is think, insane I think should, yeah. <laughs> oh my god it's i mean this is this is like almost patient zero for like kirk and spock shipping right? <laughs> i mean it's been throughout the series if you feel like you get almost a flirty vibe between shatner and nimoy this is just off the wall what is happening here uh, like like that's just such a great moment in general where as soon as the other one is in one is possibly in danger the other one is like i've got to protect them as much as possible uh you have kirk trying to send spock away because uh under the flimsy excuse that we can't have both uh the head and the second command die on this mission and spock being like i have to protect you actually and citing a uh, logical facts of the odds of the mission and that convinces kirk that's such an adorable moment um and I don't know. I feel like we maybe talk about that moment before I just launch into like five more specifics. But yeah, there's so many like just great Kirk and Spock, like uh, call it brotherly love, call it something else kind of love, but definitely they have such good chemistry in this episode. In my notes I, for that moment, I actually have screw science. My boyfriend is about to be killed. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's pretty much what it boils down to, right? What's interesting about it is, is that um, I think so much of this episode is played like it's it's in deadly earnest you know mm -hmm. there's so much drama everybody's performance is really low it kind of fits without the tight claustrophobic air of this mining colony uh you know these tunnels where you know i mean it's a small thing but the fact that you you have these smaller tunnels which the actors have to physically like crouch or crawl through like that does add to the air of claustrophobia they aren't all just big tunnels that they can walk through and so you have all this kind of oppressive atmosphere and all the rest of it and then like you get that scene where kirk and spock is are are, are you know basically just outrageously flirting with each other and 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 kirk eventually has to back down in the face of spock's um well let's let's say logic um and it, it is it is utterly adorable but but because it comes in the middle of the episode um or sorry comes in the middle of an episode which has all this kind of really like serious heartfelt drama like deep kind of you know kind of horror vibes or, or whatever it kind of it heightens the kind of slashiness of it or the or the the homoerotic aspects of it and we keep getting little scenes like that even the way that um 
you know, Spock's fascinated by these balls. Help yourself. Um, you know, it's, just, it's all there on the bed. I'm not, you know, I'm not saying anything else. And it just, yeah, it, it, because that's the way that they break the tension with these kind of very flirty scenes between them. It just, it just heightens that sense that these two are so into each other. I actually both love and hate that scene that you were talking about, in which Kirk is obviously almost kind of trying to keep Spock back from the search, if not to protect him, then to say, okay, I know you are going to be possibly wanting to save this creature and we can't have that. So I'd rather you stay back here and work on the machine with uh, Scotty. And it it's that moment of, I don't want to have to relieve you of duty, but I will if I have to. And this nice unspoken thing going on between them. The thing that I don't like about it, and I suspect the the reason why it's there, is exactly what you just said, JG. The fact that you do have it turn into a comedic moment. Cue literally the comedic music at the end of that scene. And it's like, oh, why did you have to undercut it that way? Otherwise, yeah, I, I adore that. Yeah. It's... I, I think uh, I'm trying to figure out where I know Gene Kuhn is a name that I know in association with Star Trek. I'm trying to figure out where this is in his timeline with the show, but I, he does really feel like he understands his character so well, which is why, as I understand it, he's going to be coming back. Okay. He already wrote a couple episodes already. Uh, he mm-hmm. wrote arena. He co-wrote taste of Armageddon. So we've, we're deep into this um, with him. Uh, but yeah, he, I definitely see how he becomes such an influential writer going forward. Um, like a lot of like what he understands of these characters, sort of like how we were talking with DC Fontana and the last episode she wrote that we discussed. Um, he just gets them. He just gets how these characters interact, their dynamics and everything. Well, and there's a real sense that when he's writing, he's putting the morality at the core of the episode. The morality of the episode isn't a bolt on for a final scene on the bridge or or whatever it's something which is really baked into the very core of the episode that flip when we have you know via spock the harder describing the human the humans or humanity as devils um you know that's such a i mean it's such a classic reversal but it's just genuinely not something you expect particularly not in 1967 um, it's not something that you expect to have in this kind of environment you know and when when we've been talking on you know about doctor who in the past we talk about stompy stompy bad guys and like monsters are monsters and whatever and that's kind of been the run of things till now you know mentioned the salt vampire before it's just a monster it doesn't really the only sympathetic thing about it is the fact that it's it's the last of its race it doesn't have any other kind of redeeming qualities to it but here with uh with gene alcun we have that sense that the morality of the piece is 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 really what it's all about it's not just uh kill or be killed it's not just uh oh if only we could have saved the buffalo or come star trek 4 oh if only we could have saved the whales or whatever you know i, I mean you know we everybody loves star trek 4 of course it's a brilliant movie but the whale stuff is a bit tacked on um <laughs> it's, but you know here it's it's absolutely not tacked on it's so much the core of what this episode is about and that drive towards having it's not a morality play really it's it's that morality play would be too 
pejorative, I suppose, to describe this. Um, but it is uh, it is a piece with a really strong moral core, and it allows our characters to you know explore the different aspects of that. Like, like I mentioned, kind of at the top of the show, like Kirk is quite unsympathetic in places here. You know, he we we're allowed to see his flaws. You know, sometimes he is overtaken by fear, so he stops being scientifically rational in the way that Spock is. Sometimes McCoy is allowed to be unsympathetic, so he doesn't understand or want to help the Horta until he's literally ordered to do so. You know, we, the, 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 that's all part of it. So uh, morality plays tend to be quite simplistic this is a much more kind of complicated piece and it's so much the better for it yeah um since you mentioned mccoy i feel like it's our duty to point out this is the first time in uh this we get in this specific construction i'm not a doctor i'm a bricklayer i'm a doctor not a bricklayer almost reversed it my bad but uh yes uh the famous catchphrase um it looks like we did not mention a the similar what am i a doctor or a moonshell conductor in our corbomite maneuver episode that's kind of the closest thing we have up until this point of, you know, the the classic phrase that the writers will keep going to over and over again, <laughs> and which is very funny, at least in this instance, of uh, not being a bricklayer when working with this monster. And indeed, to fix it, he does have to do some bricklaying. <laughs> yeah, with green concrete, which is a curious thing. I, I yeah. love the little world-building <laughs> detail that they just have, like magical concrete on the ship to help like make re like construction repairs on any planet they come across yeah it's a weird one you would think like if you're building a colony on this planet it would feel slightly more well i hate to use the word but logical that they might have something like that lying around but no apparently the enterprise just has like sacks of concrete sitting about in a, a storage base somewhere you know just just in the off chance yeah, well, I, I didn't want to point this out, but don't get me uh, started on the logic of Scotty not even having the parts to replicate this particular part, which is so important to the nuclear reactor not burning down. That's like, oh, for heaven's sake. I know it's a MacGuffin. I know it's something that we need in order to push the plot along. But yeah, we're, we're far before replicators at this point, so it makes more sense. I How like did the Horta moment. get it out? That's what oh, I that's want. that's a good question. The Horta that, has no hands as far as we can tell or, or <laughs> any other kind of opposable thumbs that might allow it to manipulate technology. How did it get it out without damaging it? That's that's the question I want answered. Yeah, without melting it. <laughs> it doesn't make sense. What I do love, though, I actually like Sky's explanation of, like, this is such an old model, I wouldn't know how to build it. It's like... Of course, a mining colony would still be running on like Windows XP in like this day and age. Like, they just haven't bothered to update it. Like that's such a fun. It's almost like I don't know how they thought of that in the sixties. What would be the equivalent in the sixties when they have an idea like that of like tech being so outmoded? Like we've already moved so past it, we don't have the parts on hand. I don't know. If that was as much of a problem then as it is today with something like that. <laughs> No, I agree. I, I can't really think of an immediate sort of like 1960s precursor to that. But yeah, that's like, um, I don't know, maybe it's like like maybe the like, like the needle on a 78 RPM gramophone record or something. Yeah. You know? <laughs> <laughs> that, this, is the, this is the 23rd century equivalent of a gramophone that Scotty's trying to repair. Um, but it, it's such a nice touch that that feels like so, that's so much more a convincing piece of world building than like vast amounts of technobabble or, or whatever, you know, it's just like, yeah, it's really old. 
we can't fix it. What, what, do you, what do you want from me? I mean, it's ridiculous. Well, I love, I, by the way, uh, James Dune isn't in this episode very much, but the way he basically laughs when he's asked that question <laughs> and then suddenly has to like sober up and take it seriously, that's a lovely little character beat from him. <laughs> yeah, it, I mean, it is like asking, um, well, can you rebuild like a, win, a MacBook? Um, a MacBook uh, when all we have on the ship are iMacs. Like, you just can't do it. <laughs> it's just like, it's such a fun, genuine reaction from him that makes so much sense, too. Yeah, I think a lot of the, 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 the um, supplementary characters in this episode are, are kind of nicely characterized in that way. Like I said, James Dune doesn't get a lot to do in this episode, but he gets some nice reactions. And most of the miners are kind of they're slightly interchangeable to a certain point, but, um, you know, like the reaction feels real. Um, and it's really interesting to think of the way that their attitudes are shaped. I don't know if it's deliberate on the part of Gene Kuhn, but knowing the kind of writer that Gene Kuhn is, I suspect it probably is. Um, but I love the detail of the colonists sort of saying, you know, well, if we don't have phasers, we'll grab pipes, but we're not going to be like driven out of our homes. And it comes across as that kind of classic Western style, you know, the, the homesteaders who defend themselves against the enemies who are raiding them. It doesn't ever seem to occur to any of them that they don't belong there. And it's a really interesting approach to colonial uh, attitudes. It's very kind of subtle, almost kind of too subtle in a way. But, you know, like the idea, oh, this is our home. We belong here. It's like, no, you don't. You're the, that's, that's the whole right. point of the episode. You're the invaders, not the horda. You're the one who are imposing yourself on there and you don't have a right really to defend your homestead in this case. It's their planet. You're just visiting. And I'm so glad you brought that up because I looked up the actor who plays Vanderberg, uh, Ken Lynch, mm. who at that point was better known for playing tough uh, police detectives and also Western sheriffs. So it makes sense that he's playing that sort of sheriff role and we're not going to be driven off our territory, which is the sort of thing that you'd expect more in a show. I'm thinking of a contemporary show from that time, say Bonanza, for instance. And here, his part's not that far removed from one of those roles, but in that scene where he finds out the truth about the Horda, he shows some surprising emotional depth when he comes to this realization, oh my God, we, we never knew this is this is awful and that's the that's kind of the brilliance of a show like this that you get somebody who's used to playing these very rote roles and they have that twist at the end of them that somehow changes it oh yeah I, if anything this is my one knock at the episode is it really hits that 50 minute limit hard and there's not more resistance almost yeah. Like, as soon as they explain, oh, it's just protecting the eggs, and oh, it can help, like, it's almost too clean of a solution. Um, you, you almost want a little more tension between the Horda, like, the settlers still want to kill it, or maybe the Horda is actually damaging them, and you need a bit of a tougher choice that they have to give something up to live in harmony here. Like, it unfortunately does not work out uh, that way in real life as often, where... Oh, actually, if you don't kill the creatures in the rainforest, they can help us build like condos or something. No, that's not how it works in like an ecological sense. Uh, sometimes you do just have to leave native species alone. Uh, but yeah, it, it's a, it's a very clean solution to a very difficult issue. 
just because, I mean, they just run out of time. They just have to <laughs> give us a happy ending. Yeah, I have a feeling that the family, the families of the miners who got killed by the Horda are probably not feeling as generous towards the Horda right. as everybody else is by the end. Well, they might be considering the amount of money apparently everybody's about to make in this completely moneyless future. Oh, don't get me started on that. <laughs> <laughs> You'll all be rich, but wait, we don't have money. Oh, just keep keep moving, keep moving, and I'll be fine. <laughs> well, the, the weird thing is they don't not have money yet. Oh, that made no sense. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> that they're not a moneyless society just yet. That's the, not... the whole money thing is just completely that that's never worked in Star Trek. So, yeah, no, no yeah. it absolutely hasn't. Can I very briefly, well, probably not so briefly, laud William Shatner in this episode? Because, um, I don't know if you ever get into the background of the production of some of these episodes, but in this particular one, the the interesting thing about it is that Shatner's father died during the production of it. So he had to go back to Montreal for the funeral and then return to film his scenes. And this is still one of his favorite episodes, and it really strikes me as just amazing the fact that he's able to channel some of that grief into things like the moment when he sees that his security guy has been killed by the Horda. I've noticed whenever Kirk loses an episode, uh, an offer, uh, sorry, edit, I've noticed when Kirk loses an officer, he really feels it in a way that other captains don't always show. And that feel that look of loss on his face at that moment is like, oh my God, he's channeling what he's just gone through. And the fact that he's able to do this amazing acting job, even after having had that tremendous loss, is just very I don't know what it is, but it moves me quite a bit. I mean, we're all just reading stuff on the internet, so I don't know, uh I don't want to contradict you, I just don't know who is right. But what I read was that he his father died in the middle of filming and he kept going until all his scenes were filmed um oh. they were able to move the schedule around i think a, a scene that was supposed to take place in the enterprise instead took place on the office set um on the planet just because it was easier to get to there and move faster uh he shot basically all of his dialogue scenes and his stand-in is in a lot of the scenes he's in like a lot of times right. spock is talking to the horta you just see the back of the stand-in rather than shatner oh. But they basically rearranged the schedule for him to get out of there as soon as possible. But he still completed everything before going to the funeral, which is... And that's probably right. Yeah, I, I'm perfectly willing to be contradicted because my memory on these things is pretty hazy. But I'm, I'm still impressed by the fact yes. that... I'm even more impressed oh, yes. if that's the fact. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's such a remarkable effort from him. And it's just... And he's still... Like, you wouldn't know otherwise he still gives such a good locked in performance that um yeah and he's just he talks a lot about i mean getting back to themes talked about earlier how close he got to nimoy during this time and since they shared so many scenes together in this episode and how he, they really relied on each other so yeah it's it just i don't know it, it just gives you so much respect for the man and the performance he was doing in this show yeah, I mean, Nimoy steals the show, obviously. Right. <laughs> because the mind melt scene is just oh, astonishing. We've got to talk about that in a second, but yes. <laughs> yeah, I mean, everything everything about um, Shatner's performance in this is great. 
um, just to sort of put a bow on that. But it, it's worth it's worth saying that like the seriousness of the episode kind of almost benefits from that. So mm. Shatner was like struggling to deliver his lines. You know, I mean, obviously all all credit to him for carrying on. You know, working right up until the wire before he had to go to the funeral. But that might. I mean, you know, the heaviness of that kind of sits on the episode. But this is a, this is in a way almost like a good episode for that heaviness to sit. And if this had been something that was a bit of a, a bit frippery, like shore leave or something like that, like this, the Delph scenes would have been impossible. But because this is darker, because it's a drama, because there's something really serious going on, it kind of might even benefit from that. But um, but yeah, no, of course, all praise to him as well. But now, now we have to talk about Leonard Nimoy. Mm-hmm. Mm. I mean, let's start with that mind meld scene. It's incredible. He is so good at just like, for, I mean, his performance by necessity has been so tamped down for the past 24 odd episodes. And he does so much great work in that sort of tamped down mode. But when he gets this chance to really emotionally lose it, he is just going for it. Almost like he knows this is his one chance to really play to the rafters, and he just has such a huge reaction. It's wonderful. Yeah, and he's doing the best he can with what is admittedly some of the worst writing in the episode, because <laughs> I have to admit, this whole bit of the Chamber of the Ages, the Altar of Tomorrow, everything the Horda calls the things around it is kind of like, oh, uh, all right, that's a bit on the purple side. And yet he manages to, I can't believe I'm going to say this word, he manages tr to transmogrify it into something that is really emotionally affecting. Oh, I completely agree. Um, um, you know, it, it would be so easy for the kind of the over-the-topness of that writing to get sort of drowned um, in, in kind of kind of performances. Um, but it's also like the last episode we covered was um, the side of paradise where again we get to see Spock kind of emoting but in a very very kind of different way you know he's full of love and drugs and, and all that <laughs> all that okay mostly drugs um, so it's mostly um, and, and you know again Namai gives a great performance of course he does but there's a very different kind of sort of emotionally sort of fragile performance and it's 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 that so come back to Doctor Who again but it's that thing about taking your bubble wrap seriously you know mm -hmm. You know, he's he's squeezing this costume in a slightly um, um, molestation-based way, shall we say. Um, I'm trying to think of a polite yeah. way of putting that. I just couldn't bring anything else to mind. So he's molesting this blanket um, whilst, you know, like given the performance of a lifetime. But that's what makes it work. It, it, he's mm -hmm. so committed. To, if he was like one billionth of a percent less committed the whole thing would just kind of collapse it would just be kind of absurdly camp and impossible to take seriously but because he nails his performance it suddenly becomes completely believable you completely invested mm -hmm. yeah i mean that just almost sums up so much about this episode and so much trek in general without the conviction behind it it would all fall apart and these best episodes like this one it's because everyone on set is so committed and so ready to just go there and treat this uh, person under a pizza blanket very seriously. And uh, Nemo almost most among them. I mean, yeah, there's other great Nemo moments that we're going to shout out. Like we've talked about the 
practically flirting he was doing with uh, Shatner in his earlier scenes, and he's so good at playing that so coyly. The end scene is such like, a great button. I've grown to really love these Enterprise Bridge end scenes where they do a little jokes about the, the adventure they just had. And um, <laughs> Nimoy, like, trying to coyly be like, uh, and she she liked my ears, at least. And then Kirk calling him out for having pride is so funny. Um <laughs> But again, yeah, if you want to lean horrible. into the slash reading there, I mean, like those two just flirting again outrageously on the bridge at the end. Yes. <laughs> whilst, 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 whilst Paternal McCoy looks on, uh, you know, with sort of calm approval at his mm-hmm. his, 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 his son and the new boyfriend. <laughs> <laughs> but it is a delight. I mean, we spend almost no time in the Enterprise uh, at all in this episode, mm-hmm. and yet it is another, it's another lovely capper. I, I, I'm, I'm really pleased that you've come to like those scenes, uh, Kev, because like some people do find them unbearable and corny and teeth-rattling and all the rest of it, but I'm really glad you enjoyed them, because I always enjoy them. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, they're just such wonderful little buttons on every episode. Uh, yeah, I, I, it's just another just great example of how strong the show is getting at writing its characters. I mean, like this is what sets Star Trek apart from the Twilight Zone. They're both imagining like these weird sci-fi scenarios and dilemmas and how to resolve them, but um, Star Trek has these extremely strongly written personalities that you've just grown to attach to over the course of this first season. And that is the key to like future Trek series in general. If you don't enjoy hanging out with these characters, you might as well throw the show in the dustbin. And this is uh, this is what original series sets the template. You really enjoy hanging out with these characters. Yeah, I mean, I think um, I think that's a great summary, and we can we can probably sort of move towards final thoughts as far as as far as this episode's concerned. But yeah, what a great slice of television! It's just such a such a joy to be able to revisit something which sits in the memory so warmly and so fondly and discover that you know actually just for once the memory doesn't cheat this really is as good as everybody says it is it's it's a wonderful piece of television a great slice of star trek and and you know it's an episode that thoroughly and fully deserves its reputation i i do have one little thing and i have to wonder how much of spock's career has been spent telling kirk not to touch things (laughs) <laughs> because there's that moment where he tells him not to touch the tunnel because it's full of acid and you'll get burned don't do that captain and it reminded me of that moment in star trek the motion picture when he almost touches the leads on V'ger and almost you know electrocutes himself and spock actually has to physically pull his hand away and it's like okay that's little moments like that for some reason stick out to me wasn't that worth waiting for it is a great observation (laughs) all right i mean i I think that wraps it up so why don't we get into episode scores i don't know if you have more preamble jg uh no that's fine i'm uh well i'm talking so i'm not gonna go first so now i'm sorry kev it's gonna be one of those ones that i annoy you with i'm going to give this nine and a half out of ten um it's such a great episode there's a couple of little logistical bits which maybe not like half a point off but in the whole it's such a confident piece of television the character work is great the moral dilemma works it's just just a, a very nearly perfect slice of star trek so i'm gonna give it a nine and a half out of ten um tony what would you like to give it I would go with nine and a half out of 10 as well. And probably because that 0.5 is going to be reserved for things like that 
moment of comedic music, which I always hate in these episodes, but it has to be there in order to amp up the drama. And also, I noticed that Kirk somewhat put some motivations into the Horda's uh, uh, mouth, as it were, when he says she was happy to share the planet until they broke into the hatchery. It's like, no, 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 probably she wasn't. But I do find it interesting that even a writer like Diane Duane has worked this episode into the book's continuity by having one of the children of the Horda end up serving on the Enterprise. Oh. Yeah, imagine how that works. But yeah, he's he's an amazing character and Kirk constantly thinks of him as a giant pan pizza in the text. So yeah, it's it's got everything going for it. There are very few things that don't work and they're even such minor things. Yeah, I'd ha- I'd unreservedly give this a nine point five. Yeah, um, I just want to point out, JG, you've given the last 10 episodes uh, 0.5 ratings. Um, I don't know if this is a targeted attack at me, or maybe proving my point that if you're given the option of a 0.5, you, the human brain wants to hedge its bets. But that is why I hold firm with my uh, solo point grading, and this is a 9 out of 10. It's so good. Fair enough. Well, I can't very well argue with a 9 out of 10, but I think we can probably leave this episode now and move on to recommendations. So, uh, Tony, you're our guest this week, so uh, what would you like to recommend? I have just seen in the theater, and it will be out of the theater by the time this goes out, I'm sure, um, an anime film called Seizume, and it is incredible. It is really quite lovely. I didn't think I was going to enjoy sitting through... I love anime, by the way. I didn't think I would enjoy sitting through an anime for two hours that was subtitled in a theater, and yet it was a pretty amazing experience. Even cried at the the end. So, yeah. If you have a chance to see this, especially if it is released on uh, DVD or Blu-ray, I would definitely recommend it. Fantastic. Thank you very much. Uh, Kev, what have you got for us this week? Uh, I am going to recommend the second season of the show Schmigadoon, otherwise known as Schmicago. Uh, for those who don't know the concept of the show, in the first season, it follows Cecily Strong and Keegan-Michael Key as they get trapped in a world based on the musicals of the 50s and 60s, maybe a little 40s in there. I have to really look up when these musicals came out. But Sound of Music, Music Man, um, all those sorts of things. And so... A really talented ensemble cast, uh, Ariana DeBose, Alan Cumming, Jamie Camille, um, just Kristen Chenoweth, uh, Aaron Tveit, just Dove Cameron. So many great uh, stage a- musical actors uh, basically bring, this, bring that show to life, uh, playing these sort of parodies of musical numbers from that era as the two normal humans figure out how to get out of there. Uh, the second season just came out on Apple TV+. Chicago. It recently finished its run, actually. Uh, finished run early May, it's a month ago, but still, <laughs> it's incredible. I mean, the first season is also a delight. It's really one of my favorite little things that exists. And that second season takes everything and just ups the ante even further. Um, the musical numbers are inspired by, as you can guess, uh, the musical 70s, 80s, like Chicago, but also Sweeney Todd, Jesus Christ Superstar, Hair, Godspell. Um, there's a little bit of cabaret in there. And they take this inspiration to such a great extreme. The the musical numbers are incredible. They feel like they could come right out of those musicals I just cited. Uh, Instead of like 
mostly comedic numbers. They've now transitioned to almost half and half, or there's still a lot of funny songs in there, but some of them are just straight up great uh, songs. Like you can listen like and just played entirely earnestly too. The entire ensemble cast more or less carries over. They add Titus Burgess as a na- Pippin-like narrator character this season, but uh, you still have Cecil Strong, King Michael Key as your leads, and all those wonderful actors listed earlier uh, just populating the world of these musical characters. And yeah, it's the one knock I have on season two is there's less of a strong emotional thorough line as season one has, but it's just like a chaotic um, gag machine and source for just great Broadway style uh, songs. It is just unparalleled. It's such a fun watch if you like musicals, uh, which I know doesn't apply to my co-host, but I have hopefully applied to some of you else out there. So yeah, Schmicago and Schmigadoon, both on Apple TV+, both six half-hour episodes. Honestly, it's the one show recommend binging. Just each season can watch in a three-hour chunk as if it's a continuous musical, and it's so good. I love it. Uh, I didn't mention Jane Krakowski earlier, so I want to mention Jane Krakowski. She is a great bit part in season one and an incredible, like, bigger part in season two. Well, that sounds perfectly horrific. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But I do love Jane Krakowski, so, you know, that's something. Um, Yeah, sorry, I am famously anti-musical. But, yeah, no, that sounds great. Um, I'm going to recommend um, a BBC television show uh, this time. I'm going to recommend Inside Number Nine. Uh, which is a sort of black comedy sort of uh, horror anthology show uh, starring Reese uh, Shearsmith and Steve Pemberton. Uh, it's just that time of recording, broadcasting its eighth season. Um, and it's a constant delight. Like for anybody who likes uh, black comedy, um, plot twists, it, it's, it's not a bajillion miles away from The Twilight Zone or from Black Mirror or any of those kind of shows. But it's also completely its own thing. It's got that very weird sort of work perspective that Reese Shearsmith and, and Steve Pemberton always bring to their material, like League of Gentlemen and um, Psychoville, of course, which is just brilliant as well. Uh, it's it's just the most amazing kind of show to get lost in. It's every every episode, like I said, it's an anthology, so every episode is something different. Uh, there's no real consistency between it other than the fact that it's it's just a great TV show. Uh, it's had a fantastic list of guest stars who are just like the best of the best from kind of British television. So we have uh, David Warner's in there, Philip Dwanister, Nicola Walker, um, Derek Jacobi's been in it, um, Timothy West. It's just like this just amazing list of cast uh, members who will turn up and just be in it because it's got Zoe Wanamaker's in there as well. Uh, just there's so many people. Um, and they all add, it, it's that kind of classic British TV tradition of just getting really, really talented people to turn up and do this like half hour show that otherwise, you know, maybe people wouldn't necessarily take uh quite seriously as the otherwise do i might also be thinking of another well-known british sci-fi institution at this point you can probably (laughs) figure out uh, which which one um it's just a great show um the the seasons are only six episodes long the episodes are only half an hour long so saying like there's eight seasons it's not as much of a catch-up as you think it is if you haven't seen it but uh anyway that's my recommendation for for this week inside number nine and I think with that, we can probably call time on the episode. But just before we go, um, Tony, would you like to plug anything? Uh, yes, I'd like to invite everybody to watch... Edit. 
Yes, I'd like to invite everybody to listen to our podcast, which is the Doctor Who Target Book Club podcast. You can find it on SoundCloud at soundcloud.com forward slash Doctor Who Target BC. And also, I do a channel on YouTube called That 70s Review, where we watch the shows we loved as kids from the 70s and see if they hold up. That is on youtube.com forward slash Emperor Dalek. Fantastic. Thank you very much. And Kev, would you care to tell people how they can get in touch with us? Of course. You can find us at TalkTrek to you on Twitter. I'm on Twitter at Kev Kozer, K-E-V-K-O-E-S-E-R. And they also frequently guest on the action movie discussion podcast, Total Massacre. Uh, you can find more of JG's writings at www.jgmcquarrie.scott, J-G-M-C-Q-U-A-R-R-I-E.scott. And his other podcast is Beatles Stuffology, where he and Andrew Deacon go through the Beatles track by track. Please like, rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast on whatever podcatcher you use to help other people find it. Fantastic. Thank you very much. And Tony, thank you very much for joining us this episode. Wonderful. Well, that's where we will leave things for today. Next episode, well, it's going to be the debut of the Klingons. So that has to be something to look forward to, right? As we deal in an errand of mercy. And as always, we hope you're going to join us for it. But until then... Keep talking.